I want to read to you John 11, verses 1 to 16. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with, oil, with ointment and wiped, her, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, they're not 12 hours in the day. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you might believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Pray with me. Lord, I would plead with you now to add your blessing to our study of your word. There are hearts that need courage for hardship and suffering. I pray that they will start finding it as we open this. God, be merciful, be glorified. We are people redeemed saints we are people who still fail we need your mercies to be new every morning so god draw near and help us to draw near to you we ask it in jesus name amen you can be seated how do you respond to the concept of suffering and hardship course none of us wants to suffer right you guys are anti-suffering for the most part just checking anybody pro-suffering anybody saying you know what i'd like a little more please not so far but when you think about human suffering how do you see it do you expect it or do you somehow let yourself believe that your life can be free from all hardship St. Augustine is reported once to have said that God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. An honest and biblical mindset will remind us that suffering is a part of life in a fallen, broken world. There will come a day when Jesus Christ returns. Boy, did we talk about that in Sunday school today. And when he comes, he's going to bring about the new creation. He'll remove the curse of sin and he'll wipe away every tear and he'll eradicate all suffering. 
But at least until this very moment, that has not yet come to pass. Thus, we need to know how to think about the issue of suffering. Because we're going to face it. And what should be in our minds as we do? Today, as we move into John chapter 11, the Lord's going to teach us something about human suffering. We're opening the account of the seventh of the seven major signs, the seven major miracles in the gospel according to John. And here in verses 1 to 16 of John 11, all we're going to learn is the need for the miracle to take place. But as we watch the story unfold, we'll find five points you can write down that teach us about suffering, love, and the glory of God. Point number one, for you who realize I don't sneak points in on you, you're welcome. Point number one, suffering will come. Suffering will come. Look at one and two. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. As the account opens, we don't get a location or time stamp for where Jesus is. John 10, when it ended, Jesus had left Jerusalem. It was the month of December, and he's going to the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing. That doesn't mean, however that he is still in that exact location right now. The crucifixion of Jesus will take place in Jerusalem in early April. So what we know for sure is Jesus is not in or near Jerusalem as this passage opens. And we know it's before April of the year of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, which is probably 33 A.D., Lazarus of Bethany was ill. We don't know Lazarus here. But John expects his readers to be familiar with his sisters, Mary and Martha. These ladies haven't at all been mentioned in John's writing yet, but their names are known in the early church. Luke 10, 38 to 42 tells a story of Mary and Martha hosting a dinner for Jesus. Remember, Mary sat at Jesus' feet and Martha did all the work, and she was annoyed by her sister not pitching in to help. Remember that story? And some of you identify a lot with Martha, and some of you think, I want to be like Mary, and we know how this works. Well, there's more than one town called Bethany in the Bible, and the Bethany that Mary and Martha live in is only a couple miles from Jerusalem. John gives us a fascinating detail here about Mary, of Mary and Martha. He says that Mary is the lady who anointed Jesus with oil and wiped his feet with her hair. This hasn't even happened yet in John's telling of the life of Jesus. You're going to read about this uh, in chapter 12, the beginning of the week before Jesus' death and resurrection. That, That whole thing about anointing him and wiping his feet, that would have happened at the end of March. So either John expects you to read this book more than once, which I'm sure he does, or John expects that you're going to know this story because you've also read it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, John's reference to to Mary anointing Jesus helps us to understand that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were followers of Jesus. They were close to Jesus. 
They cared about him. This is not some random family out there. And Lazarus was ill. He was a friend to Jesus. And Lazarus was ill. His family was kind to Jesus. And Lazarus was ill. How ill? We're not talking about the sniffles here. Lazarus was ill in a way that threatened his life. And here's where we stop. We make our first point. Suffering will come. It doesn't matter whether you live in first century Palestine or 21st century America. Suffering will come. Doesn't matter if you have no technology or all the technology that you could ever dream of. Suffering will come. People hurt, people get sick, people die. This is part of living in a fallen world that has not yet been renewed by Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verses 20 and 22 say to us, for, 20 through 22 say, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Did you hear that? Creation groans. You ever felt like creation was just groaning around you? You ever feel like the world's a bit of a mess? It says it groans like a woman suffering in the pangs of labor. Creation cries out. Things are not presently what they're supposed to be. Natural disasters, man-made destruction are part of the world that we live in. War, crime, prejudice, cruelty, greed, so many other things impact so very many people. Fear, sickness, pain, and death are part of the human experience. And here we learn suffering is not something that only impacts the bad guys in society. Lazarus seems like a nice guy. He knew Jesus personally, yet he suffered. He was ill. He would die. One of the most dangerous lies that a Christian can let himself or herself believe is that true believers do not suffer. That is a lie. It is purely false. No matter how close to God you are, no matter how faithful to God you are, no matter how much you believe, suffering is still a part of the experience of all of mankind, including Christians. You might hear somebody out there tell you that if your faith was only strong enough, you'll avoid pains and sickness and sufferings in this life. That's a lie. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says to us, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
Some teachers and authors would tell you that Christians can claim by faith all sorts of health and wealth and prosperity, but the Word of God tells us suffering is something that stands out as a mark of belonging to Christ. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 5 says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. God promises us comfort in our sufferings. God does not promise us avoidance of suffering. Now, I don't want to be a a downer this morning. It's kind of sad so far, isn't it? But I want us to have a biblical mindset. It is wise for you to have biblical expectations because much heartbreak comes when a person thinks God owes him something that God will not do. So with hope in God, may we have a biblical enough view of life to understand that suffering will come. If Lazarus could fall ill, we can suffer too. Point number two. Suffering can glorify God. Suffering can glorify God. Look at verses 3 and 4. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Mary and Martha send word to Jesus. The Savior's not nearby, so somebody's got to be given the task of informing him, Lazarus, somebody Jesus loves, is ill. And the sisters expect Jesus to care. They expect that hopefully he'll do something. Maybe he'll hear about it quick enough. Maybe maybe he'll, he'll get back there. I mean, he's healed so many people. Surely Jesus is going to come heal his friend. And the first thing Jesus says could easily be mistaken. Jesus says this illness does not end in death. So you've got to be thinking, all right. The assumption that we're going to make is that Lazarus is not going to die. But what Jesus said is that Lazarus' death is not going to be the final outcome of this story. We're going to have to wait a couple sermons for that one, okay? Then... Jesus tells us the purpose for what's going on. Oftentimes we wish that God would let us know why things are happening in our lives, right? And sometimes you find out, and sometimes, like Job experienced, you do not get to find out. Here Jesus tells us what's happening to Lazarus is for the glory of God. Now, just for a second, let me make a doctrinal aside. Jesus says... Look at verse 4. I think it's 4. Jesus said this illness is is about the glory of God. Then he said that it is so that the Son of God would be glorified. If you don't understand the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, you might be confused. Is this about the glory of God or is it about the glory of the Son? And the answer is yes. There's one God, three persons. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. 
there is only one God. This illness is to the glory of God. This illness glorifies the Son who is God in the flesh. Right here, one more time, Jesus is God. Now, let's see the second point. Suffering can be to God's glory. Something about what Lazarus and his family are going through is particularly intended to magnify the Lord. Something about what's going to happen will show us the perfection, weightiness, the power, the importance, the goodness of God. Something about what's taking place will show us that Jesus is glorious as God the Son, just as much God as the Father is God. Allow yourself to understand, dear friends, our hardships are often for the glory of God. God works all things together for good. Even when all things are not actually good in and of themselves. Our joys, our sufferings, they're all about the glory of our Lord. Everything that exists does so for the glory of God. You and I are made in the image of God Our purpose for existing is magnifying the glory of God to show the universe that watches how big, strong, mighty, weighty, awesome, good, great God is. God also reveals to us in his word that his glory is the only thing that will give your soul true joy, true satisfaction. We're made for God. And our hearts hunger for God in such a way that they can only be filled when God is glorified. And when God is truly glorified in our lives, then and only then are our souls truly satisfied. And that should help you to look at your hardships differently. We face ugly things in our lives Knowing that God can use even those ugly things to bring him glory is really important. If we understand that God's glory is our ultimate, our only final source of satisfaction in our souls, then we'll approach hardships differently. Rather than becoming embittered, rather than demanding that God, you better explain to me why this is happening, we can rest in and hope in the fact that our lives, including our sufferings, are for the glory of God. A glory that will fill our souls with infinite, eternal joy. Third point. Suffering can come from the love of God. Suffering can come from the love of God. Verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. You saw that, right? Keep those words. They're important. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Does that sound weird to you? A few weeks ago, we studied Matthew 7, a little one-off sermon. We talked about the broad and the narrow ways. You remember that one? I said to us then, One entrance to the broad path to destruction is for you to redefine who God is based on your best wisdom. That's a bad move. That will lead you to destruction. We should not be surprised that God, the infinitely holy one, is different than we are. 
God thinks differently than us, sees the world differently than us, values things differently than us. It's a massive mistake for you to think God is just like you would be if you had his power. That's not who God is. Well, let me share with you a similar danger that we see in how people think about God. If God sees things that you and I cannot see, if he has wisdom we do not have, if he has purposes we cannot grasp, it is a huge mistake for us to think that we can say what God has to do in order to properly love us. But if you think about it, many of us fall into really dark places by allowing ourselves to think that if God really loved me, he'd give me this or he'd keep me from that. We forget God's ways are not our ways. Neither are his thoughts our thoughts. And applying that principle, God can love us in ways that we from our finite perspective might not see as love at the time. Verse 5 is clear. Jesus loved Lazarus and his family. What do you assume? If Jesus loves Lazarus, and Jesus knows Lazarus is sick, and Jesus has the ability to heal, what's he going to do? Obviously, he's about to come heal Lazarus. Obviously, he's about to run to Bethany and love on that family. That's obvious, right? How strange is it then to read So, when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus loved this family. So, what did that love make him do? In this instance, Jesus loving the family caused him not to help them. It caused him to stay away. It caused him not to answer their clear desire that he would come heal Lazarus and prevent his death. Side note, there are some translations out there that replace the word so with the word yet. Do you have a yet? NIV people? There's a yet or a but sometimes. That is a faulty translation. I will very seldom tell you when something is is a bad translation because I never, ever want you to lose confidence in your copy of Scripture. But if you put the word but there or yet there, you're turning the meaning of the passage on its head. That is the translator putting his interpretation into the meaning. And it's a mistake. The Greek phrase here is not one of contradiction. It is one of causation. The verse does not say, Jesus loved this family, but he stayed away anyhow. It was weird. It says, Jesus loved this family, and that love is the very thing that caused him to stay away. We've got a lesson to learn here, though. The love of Jesus did not prevent the immediate pain of this family. The love of Jesus did not prevent them from suffering. The love of Jesus, because it's better than we can understand, because God is greater than we can fathom, because God's purposes are perfect, included letting Lazarus die. Love brought suffering for a better purpose. Suffering can come from the love of God. 
It's not that hard to understand it, is it? When I was little, my parents made me eat vegetables I did not enjoy. I suffered. Does that mean they didn't love me? No. It was better for me to get the vitamins and minerals that were somehow still left in whatever that was. Dad's Brussels sprouts with the brown vinegar. That ain't yummy. I don't care what happens. You know, there were times I needed a shot at the doctor's office and I did not want it. I suffered. Did this mean my parents did not love me? Of course not, right? It's for my good. I didn't want to go to school sometimes. I did not like doing my homework. I suffered. Did that mean my parents didn't love me? That one did. Yes, it meant that. No, it didn't mean that. Learning was good for me. I could probably use more of it. Sometimes things we do not like, even our suffering, comes out of a place of love. Let me make a little disclaimer, though, because I want you to be sure that you don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Don't hear the stuff I just said and let it cause you to ever submit to abuse. Not all suffering is inflicted out of love. Some people are just flat evil. Some people want to hurt you. If a person is sinning against you, they're not showing you love. If a person is sinning against us, we need to take biblical recourse to get to safety and see that right justice is done. So when I say suffering might mean love even if you don't like it, that's not me telling you to ever submit to abuse. So wives, don't take it, okay? With all that said, though, I guess I should say husbands don't take it too, but it tends to go the other way. We cannot say, if God lets you suffer, it's a sign of a lack of love. It may well be that your ongoing medical struggle, your disappointment with your financial position, your struggle with a sin that just doesn't want to let go, it may be that that's there because God loves you. And is doing something greater than you could ever imagine. Jesus certainly was doing something greater than Martha and Mary could have imagined. Point number four. God is sovereign even over our suffering. Seven to ten. Then after this he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, uh, Rabbi? The Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So Jesus waits two days after getting the message sent to him by Martha and Mary. And he said to his disciples, this illness is not going to end in death. But when he said that, it makes it pretty shocking to the disciples when Jesus waits two days and then says, hey guys, time to go to Bethany. Verse 8, the disciples remember that it wasn't really probably more than a month ago that the Jews were ready to stone Jesus to death because Jesus claimed to be God. 
So hanging out in Judea, especially Judea near Jerusalem, didn't seem like a good career move in the minds of the disciples. They actually fear that if they return to that area when tensions are so high, somebody might get killed. So Jesus responds, and you've got to love Jesus' response here because it's one of those that makes you go, huh? Little figure of speech from his day. Are there not 12 hours in the day? We're going to walk and work in the day. When it's nighttime, when it's dark, walking around is dangerous. How many of you think if you were the disciples, you'd be, ah, that clears it up. I feel better now. If, if you keep that at a surface level, right, all it's saying is nothing profound. Daytime is good, nighttime is bad for walking on ground you can't see. But Jesus likes to talk about the light of this world. He likes to talk about having the light in you. But think about how Jesus has used light as a metaphor for even bigger things. John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 9, 4 and 5 says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. And Jesus is doing the work of his Father while it's day. He doesn't mean by saying that that he only does godly things when the sun's out. Jesus is saying... As far as his earthly ministry is concerned, there's a limited window, a limited amount of time for him to do the ministry for which he came to the earth. Jesus preached and healed for about three, three and a half years. Then he went to the cross, died, then he rose from the grave and ascended to heaven. So what's Jesus telling these scared disciples? Guys, right now it's still day. I've still got work to do. And nobody is going to harm Jesus until the time Jesus has chosen. And those who walk with him in this time, in this daylight, are under his care. And ain't nobody going to take the disciples down so long as Jesus is keeping them safe with him. He's pointing us here to his sovereignty. No matter what's going on, we should never forget that God is in control. Nobody can thwart God's plan. Nobody can overpower God's will. And that's got to give us hope in times of hardship. Because God is sovereign, even over our suffering, we can walk while it's day. Makes sense now why we sang, you're faithful forever, perfect in love, you're sovereign over us. Fifth point, suffering helps us to know God better. Suffering helps us to know God better. We'll finish out the section. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to, wake, to awaken him. The disciples say to him, uh, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, He'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but he th they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. 
Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Jesus is God in the flesh. You guys know this. We've already talked about this. Jesus has access to infinite knowledge when he chooses to use it. You know that too, right? And here you know Jesus has infinite knowledge because Jesus knows exactly how Lazarus is faring even though he and the disciples are a couple days away from where Lazarus is. Kind of cool, huh? He did not get an email. And in a funny little exchange here, Jesus speaks euphemistically of what's going on. Lazarus has fallen asleep. Jesus says, I'm going to go wake him up. The disciples take him literally. They're saying, hey, don't bug him. If he's sleeping, it's good for him. Y'all ever feel like people need to put that sign up for you? (laughs) If I'm sleeping, I'll get better. Leave me alone. Jesus is telling him, no, guys, Lazarus has died. And I'm going to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's what he's saying. Now, don't let the word sleep throw you here. Several times in the Bible, the word sleep is used as a metaphor for death. Kings in the Old Testament, when they died and they were buried in their family tombs, sometimes it says, he slept with his fathers. You might see a dead body and imagine it's a sleeping person. But this is not saying that the souls of the dead are asleep. It's not saying that the souls of the dead are unaware. It's simply a way that people speak of death. The souls of the dead, you need to understand this. When somebody dies, their soul is either immediately in the presence of God or immediately under God's just punishment. And the souls of the dead are fully aware of where they are and why they're there. So Jesus says to his disciples here, for their sakes, he's glad he didn't go to Bethany and prevent the death of Lazarus. Something about what's going to happen is going to help the disciples believe in Jesus in a new, bigger, better, greater way. Thus, it is a better thing for their souls that things have happened as they have, even though those things included some very sad suffering. You got to love Thomas, by the way. What do you guys call Thomas when you talk about Thomas often? He's what, Thomas? Does he look like it here? Thomas, he's not sure they're going to survive a trip to Judea. But Thomas is faithful. He decides, you know what? If this trip's going to lead to Jesus dying, then I want to go too. Even if it ends in my death too, I want to go too. Even if you think of Thomas as doubting, see that Thomas is so willing right here. He, he wants to be willing to suffer death if only he can remain near the Savior. And that's pretty sweet. Even if Thomas may have overestimated his own courage a little bit. But the final point for today is the reminder that suffering can help folks like you and me to know God better. Psalm 119, verse 71. Here's a verse that you might want to know if you don't know it. It is good for me that I was afflicted, 
that I might learn your statutes. Anybody got that one on their fridge? It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. So often in life, it's when we go through struggles and are genuinely forced to rest our hope on Christ that we grow strongest in our faith. You think about your life for a second. Have you ever had a time in your life when you grew? Let's hope yes, right? Otherwise, we have other things we should talk about. Believers, you've grown. I would be willing to risk a guess that the time of your greatest spiritual growth is probably, maybe even the time of your, your greatest learning to trust God, the times of your greatest comfort from God, I'd be willing to guess that those times are not when things were going well. But when you're going through hardship and suffering. We do not grow strongest in the good times. We grow strongest. We grow in humility. We grow in trusting the Lord when we walk with him through the valley of the shadow. What do you guys think? Your biggest growth points in your life, were they the easy times or were they tough? Almost every mature Christian I've ever met would tell you, I grew in a season of suffering. Christians, may the text today help us think in a more godly way about our hardships and about our suffering. Suffering will come. Suffering can glorify God. Suffering can come from the love of God. God is sovereign even over our suffering. Suffering helps us to know God better. And it may be that you're hearing this and you don't yet know Jesus. So I want to let you in on something really important if you're hearing my voice and you don't know Jesus. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer too. Jesus suffered for a great purpose. Jesus died on a cross to pay the price for the sins of all the people God will ever forgive. You need that forgiveness. We all do. I do. All of us are guilty of rebellion against God. All of us need to be reconciled to God. And there's only one way for you to be made right with God. It's by God's grace through coming to Jesus in faith. So I want to call on you. Today, believe in Jesus and turn to Jesus for mercy. His suffering, his conquest of death is your only hope to have life with God and to escape eternal suffering. If you ignore God's call to salvation in Jesus, I'm being very honest with you here, if you ignore that call, all of your earthly suffering will simply be a precursor to a never-ending suffering. But if you do come to Jesus, you're going to find that all of our earthly suffering has purpose and that God will forever comfort us with an eternity of joy in his glory that outweighs 
any hardship you could ever face in the here and now. So I urge you, believe in Jesus and be saved. Let's pray together, friends. Lord God, as we bow, we acknowledge this. We need you. We need you to give us hope in suffering, strength in pain, courage in times of doubt and fear. We need the gifts only you can give. Yes, we want to think rightly about our suffering. Yes, we want to suffer well to your glory. And no, we don't like it. So I pray, Lord, that you will have mercy on us and teach us, teach us to trust you, your goodness and your sovereignty, even in moments of pain. Lord, I would also ask you, for those who don't know you, help them to come to you. Bless your church. Be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.